Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello, it's Bruce Daisley, podcast about work culture and happiness. You knew that already. Quite a brainy episode today. I've got someone who helps answer the question about whether work culture exists. Dr. Richard Claydon describes himself as a transdisciplinary... Oh, Christ. Describes himself as a transdisciplinary... Dr. Richard Claydon describes himself as a transdisciplinary behavioural scientist, stroke ironist. Now, he writes some interesting, if slightly too long, things over on LinkedIn that a few people sent to me. And we had a brilliant chat for well over an hour. I've tried to edit it into something enlightening and slightly more digestible. Richard says something that I've been thinking a lot, that we shouldn't be thinking about company culture. Office culture, or more, more probably team culture, is the most important thing for us to think about. He runs a company called Organisational Misbehaviorist, who helps companies really sort of do a lot of the things that he's going to describe today, largely build psychological safety, which is one of the things we talk about. So we talk about the ideas of strategy versus culture and have a discussion of of how those things have evolved in business circles. In the 1980s and 90s, there was a lot of talk about work culture. He explains that was because the Japanese businesses that were being celebrated and, and enviously eyed up in the, those areas were sort of being idolised largely because they appeared to have this consistent culture that uh, produced sort of real dedication amongst the people who work there. And in comparison, the workers in the UK and the US seemed slightly disengaged. So that's, uh, that's why culture was, was considered so important. This is where I think I find academics have such a valuable contribution to the debate. Richard talks about the works of Professor Joanne Martin from Stanford University, who spent time looking to try and understand in the 90s and the early 2000s, looking whether you could observe simple single company cultures and organisations. And the answer was you couldn't. Company culture is a nice story we tell ourselves, but it's an illusion. When it's most aggressively implemented, it tends to lead to people sort of going along with it in what Richard describes here as sort of ironic attachment. People making out that they're going along with the culture. That's a fascinating idea, isn't it? So we talk about that. We talk about Project Aristotle, which you you might have seen something about. It was this massive piece of work, I think in 2014, that Google did that looked at sort of 35,000 Google employees, looked at who were the best teams. 
And their finding was the secret of good teams was psychological safety, teams that had psychological safety, people sort of feeling comfortable with speaking up with no fear of punishment or reprisal and uh, where they could be their complete selves. Now, that drew a lot on the findings of Amy Edmondson, and we're going to discuss her. If you're interested in those things, I've put a link to an article about Project Aristotle, uh, a link to a TED Talk by Amy Edmondson in the show notes and on the episode page on the website. Does company culture exist? Let's try and find out. Here's Dr. Richard Clayden. Thank you so much for joining me. I guess in the, in the first instance, the thing that I found so compelling about your work and, the, and the, the sort of exploration of culture that you do is you sort of take a step back and you look at the history of work culture. In the work that you talk about, you talk about how we've celebrated strategy more over the last few years at the expense of culture and culture previously used to be one of the, the dominant ethoses. Do you just want to talk through your, your take on the history of these things? Yeah, certainly. Well, I'll start with, so, so, so strategy has been around for much longer than, than culture. So strategy became the big thing in organisational thought in the 60s. Uh, and you had a, bun- a bunch of different guys working on what strategy looked like then. Uh, you had all, all the military terms in organisation appearing where you had dead, uh, deadlines and milestones and targets, etc. came out of this, this, this group of thought. Uh, it really became sort of dominant through the work of, of Michael Porter and the Five Forces and what I would call a deliberate strategy. He sort of came up in, in the 70s and the early 80s. And at the same time that Porter was becoming a major player, you had out of, out of Japan, you had this worry in the States that Japan was becoming a competitor. So you sort of had the idea of the, there's a sort of a, the Japanese miracle and how did Japan within 30 years of the Second World War become an economic power, the second biggest e- economy in the world, an economic powerhouse rivaling the States. And then America was going through a whole bunch of industrial problems at the time and they, they examined what was going on in Japan and said well okay what are they doing differently than, than we're doing over here so on one, on one hand you've got what Porter's deliberate strategy the five forces appearing and on the other hand you've got this this interest in how Japan is is what are they doing differently than we are in the states that's turning them into this this great economic powerhouse so culture got brought in as as the final piece of the strategic jigsaw puzzle at that stage is that right? So, so, so a lot of our thinking about culture originated mm-hmm. from an idealization of, of what Japan was doing. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the key book in, in, in the period was a, a book called, well, there, four, there were four, three major books. One was Deal and Kennedy, one was uh, uh, Peters and Waterman's Famous in Search of Excellence. But the one that came out of uh, Japan was by William, I'm not sure how to pronounce his surname, I think it's Uichi, O-U-C-H-I, and it's called Theory Z. Uh, and he he sort of looked at what he he actually went to Japan and looked at what Japan was doing very differently and and this strong uh, loyalty to the organisation was one of the things that uh, uh, he he sort of noticed noticed that was different. He said, well, the employees are deeply deeply loyal, they're deeply deeply enthusiastic, deeply deeply committed to the organisation in a way that American employees are uh, they're more individualistic and resistant. They're not. They don't have that same level of loyalty uh, and commitment to the companies that Japanese worker does. He looked at. The, the various things that were making J- Japanese companies so so competitive and, and brought ideas back into the States, as did Peters and, and Waterman and as did Dylan Kennedy, they, they brought similar ideas in. So one, one of the big ideas was, was strong culture. It took off in a massive way. So if you actually look at populist and academic stuff in the, in the 80s, there's a, a massive outswelling of, of work on what strong cult- the advantage of strong culture in organizations. 
and there's very populist and, and uh, progressive uh, stuff that's that's really supportive of it and saying this is the big competitive advantage. You know, you get a strong culture in, and, and the big promise was you would get hardworking and enthusiastic and committed employees. Whereas if you didn't put a strong culture in, you'll get these individualistic, resistant employees that, that they were struggling with. So that was the big promise. And through that, you would then develop more and more products in a strategic sense because they would be committed to this these kind of processes. And, and you'd, you'd get past the union problems because they were more committed to the company than to the union. And I think your take so that, on that in some of your writing is a touch cynical in the sense that you say a good culture invites companies to pay people less or it permits people to pay people less. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that, that, sort of, that sort of happened. In the, the, the cycle, it's enabled companies to break the psychological contract. So they right. say, well, you're, rather than us paying, paying you a fair day's work for a, a, fair, day's, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, uh, we will rely on your loyalty and commitment and we, we, will, we will become sort of this governing of the soul they're quite intrusively getting into your emotions and saying well we want we want you to care about our values if you if your values match our values you're going to want to work for us and and that desire to work for us is going to be greater than than working for money so you've got the whole intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation thing the idea now that people work for intrinsic motivation that's really drives that the money is a secondary focus and that's that's one of the things that the cultural movement has strongly put into place is to, to, you know, you come and work for us. You give us all your loyalty, but we don't necessarily give you any loyalty in return. You can still be downsized tomorrow, no matter how much you you believe in the values of the company. The market realities are such that we have to get rid of you, then we have to get rid of you. It's, it's, just, it's just bad luck. So it's a sort of a one-way process quite, quite often for some of these companies. Moving on to like 2018 now, one of the things I saw in your work is you said that companies that try to create this single culture that exists across all the people who are working for them effectively mm-hmm. are either trying to do personality control, they're trying to say that everyone should have the same personality c- characteristic. Your whole point is that's utterly implausible, it's, it's not remotely realistic, and that's what leads to the, the masking that we see in some of the surveys that, you know, people say they can't be themselves at work. Yeah, absolutely. So th- I think there's, there's two points to make. There's a academic called Joanna Martin who did a big uh, analytical study of, of all the cultural surveys, all the cultural research in the 1980s, 1990s and early 2000s. And she looked at it and she said, well, no, no, one com- no company's ever managed to deliver a monoculture successfully. Every cult, every company has multiple cultures existing within the organization. There's three different ways of looking at it. One, you have the good culture. Everything that's not aligned to that is this amorphous, bad, apple mess. Another way, another sort of negative way is you've never really created your culture at all. It's all fragmented and all kinds of stuff is going on uh, and nobody's really aligning to anything. And then sort of a middle ground is, well, you've got a defined core culture and you've got some quite defined subcultures. So at least you can, you know how to get your communication working between these ones. You know how various different people are behaving. So that's, that's sort of the, the, the suggestion is that it's impossible to deliver in the first place. In terms of you know, the impossibility of doing this personality and culture fit stuff, uh, there's a real problem in that when you're you're sort of matching personality with culture, you're crossing domains. You know, and culture is anthropological; it, it's the domain of anthropology and and psychology. It's about the domain of the inner self. It should work. You know, you, you have a culture, and out of that culture, you get certain types and and, and certain roles and and certain activities. Yeah. But it's being turned on its head, and it's like, well, okay, if we hire people with a cer- with certain personality types that will then create the kind of culture that we want. 
Uh, and anybody who doesn't have that personality type is 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 not wanted or is potentially a bad apple or is going to be a troublemaker. So there's, a, there's a confusion between disciplines. No anthropologist would ever take it seriously that you can you can test the inner self and build a culture by doing that. So a lot of the the, the money that's going into this, they, they sort of try and get all these systems to try and get the right person and get the right fit. But people gain it, and we know people gain it, and. Uh, if, if you want to be very, very cynical in that space, is you act, the, the aim is to actually hire the people who game it the best because they're the ones who show that they can adapt to whatever culture you're running the best. You can't really see that they're cheating and gaming it, but you know that they're capable of adapting to the kind of behaviors you want. Uh, and if you actually hire the people who've got a very specific cultural fit, you're not getting that, that critical and creative thinking that you necessarily need to have a, a progressive organization. At a very, very cynical level, Culture fit ends up hiring the wrong people or the best gamers. It doesn't really do enough in terms of let's let's get a pluralistic group of people who can contribute to the company in, in in multiple ways, which I think is is where the future of work is going. So, so you said as a sort of part of your work, you said that um, mm-hmm. the only culture really that you know based on that gaming, the only culture that works really is ironic attachment or detachment i can't remember which one it was but um <laughs> do you want to just ex- explain what ironic detachment means <coughs> yeah so in, in in let's start in the very simple terms i think that that most organizations in in, in the world today are existing at, at the end of what we would call the cultural era so if, if organizational culture started becoming a big thing in the night in the late 1970s early 80s uh so we've got close to 40 years now of, of culture being the, this sort of big way of thinking about how we organize. Uh, there's, no, there's never been a school of organizational thought that's been dominant for longer than that period. And we're seeing, we're sort of seeing the breakdowns. So within the cultural era, you've got, you, you want loyalty, commitment to values, this sort of deep enthusiasm. You have all kinds of uh, organizational rituals. You're looking at organized cultural fit. You're looking at personality matching, all these kind of things. Of all the stuff that you've looked at, it's a, it's a, Brilliant take on work culture because I mean I'm I'm fascinated with firstly your your exploration of of how work culture actually plays out and the sort of the, the pulling back the the curtains to say well look you know realistically have you ever seen the same culture in every office no I haven't actually that there's a there's a degree of there's a, a degree of revelation about spotting that but then what would you advise companies to do because I think you've very effectively held the mirror up to to what is happening. Should companies try and move away from trying to have this monoculture and just permit mm. small but energised local rituals? I don't know if you'd use the word culture. So talk me through. What would your advice be for people in companies, whether leaders or just team members? What would they do? So I think there's, there's two components to that question. One is a strategic component and one is a cultural component. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll go through the strategic component first, um, which is the idea. So, so I talked a little bit earlier about Michael Porter's idea of a deliberate strategy. Um, we're really looking at an, emerg- an emergent strategy, which is Henry Mintzberg's interpretation of what strategy should look like. Um, so in, in a deliberate strategy, you sort of have this single corporate strategy, single culture that is valid for you know that everyone follows it now in a complex world which in a complex organizational environment that's that's problematic so a single corporate strategy we're going to suggest is valid for businesses that operate in an environment of certainty 
where cause and effect can be easily determined, where customers' expectations are well-known and stable, and when there's no probability of new competitors suddenly arising. So in, in those kind of situations, you can just run best practices. But that's not very realistic. It's possible. Um, so just to do an analogy about what that might look like, um, if you look at a, the polar bears in the North Pole, apex predators, absolutely perfectly adapted to survival, killing everything, uh, top of their game, everything's brilliant, etc. So they've got best practices going. They, they can they, they dominate the, the ecosystem in their environment. Um, but they're not expecting the ice to suddenly melt from under their feet. They don't have a secondary practice to deal with melting ice, the icebergs disappearing under them. They're now in a complex environment. They haven't got a secondary strategy. Organizations need to have these multiple strategies going on because they are existing in complex environments. So they can't dictate this, this top-down core strategy. They have to allow strategies to emerge. So to do that, you actually have to invest in small experiments. So that, in terms of the culture, yes, you then have to have all of these various different parts of the organization experimenting with what strategies might look like in different ways. So historically, you've seen things, uh, sort of winning strategies appear out of experimental ideas. So Henry Mintzberg's perfect example is you have the idea of IKEA and their flat pack furniture. Now, that happened when an employee got frustrated. He had to take the legs off his his chair or a table to transport it. He said, well, wouldn't it be a lot easier if we could constantly do this rather than have to, and they, they made a whole business out of it. Right. And this was a, a, a young, you know, this was a nobody employee. Who, who, his idea went up the organization. Um, you have Google and Gmail. I mean, Gmail, Google had this famous 80-20 split where you could spend 20% of your time working on interesting projects. Gmail came out of that 20 but It was never a formal project. It came out of this informal space. Apple and, and the, the OSX system, that was an experimental OSX that the guys designing it thought would never would always be too expensive to go into production until Steve Jobs found out they were doing it and came and had a look and said, well, okay, we're gonna we're gonna launch that. So there's 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 lots of history of these little things happening in a com- in a complex environment and you, you experiment with them, you see that they work and you quickly amplify them. And lots lots of companies are beginning to do that. You put your resources into things that work now. You experiment and you keep on pushing resources into these various experiments as and when they work. So the, the classic way of doing that is you, you eliminate waste. So you support experimental and exploratory directions. You try and limit, eliminate waste to enable those directions. You get rid of unproductive meetings. You get rid of poor project management. You try and stop spending so much time on reports. You try and reduce approval bottlenecks. You try and uh, kill your legacy systems. You, you, try and do your, you try and get rid of inefficient processes. So this is really good stuff in in the strategic processual sense, but it actually to do it in the cultural sense, uh, what you need to potentially fix then is what I would like to call behavioral waste rather than process waste. So the behavioral waste in a, in a complex culture is you've got all these people spending lots of energy existing in these, you know, in culture, in monocultures, trying to perform to the way the monoculture expects where there are actually all kinds of other things going on um, so you get co- people with who, who become cognitively uh, confused they don't know how to behave because they're being put they've got multiple um, systems telling them to behave different way or multiple managers telling them to behave different ways you've got people who are emotionally exhausted who they're, they're getting bullied and they're getting shouted at and, and they're, they're, they're becoming very psychologically distressed because they're spending all of their energy in survival mode and then you have the people who are the zealots 
who have totally attached to a system or a technology or a process that they've spent years and years working with, and they're suddenly being it's suddenly being pulled out from under their feet, and they'll do anything they can to protect that because it's what's given them meaning, and they'll they'll have all kinds of toxic behaviours to try and to try and deal with that. For me, in in, in lots of cultures, they're the three things that you've got to eliminate. So that's the that's sort of the strategic problem where you've just got to add behavioral waste to the standard process waste that we we, we see getting rid of in our agile environments. Um, you then have to move, well, how do you do that? Uh, and this has been a, I mean, this, how do you do that has been something that I've it's probably spent the last 18 months trying to think about. Well, how do you, yeah. how do you actually begin to do that? Um, so we went, sort of went back to uh, Google's Project Aristotle, where they, they examined what made a perfect team. So two years, 180 teams, 37,000 employees. And they argued that the, the one key difference between a, a really great team and just an okay team was psychological safety. What does it mean to be psychologically safe? Well, there's, there's two specific things we then have to do. So we know we've got this cognitive confusion. We know we've got this emotional exhaustion. And we know we've got this zeal. So we have to eliminate that. I don't want to suggest that, that Google is perfect throughout the organization. I mean, because not every one of their teams is a perfect team. They just identified teams that that did better than other teams. Uh, whether they've been able to sort of operationalize that throughout their organization, I don't know. You hear occasional stories come from, from ex-Google employees saying, well, it was a brutal place to work and it wasn't that much fun and we had this and we had that. So I don't want to, to, I don't want to paint them in the, as, as the perfect company, but I do want to suggest that what they, they, they have, and, and Amy Edmondson as well, has, has identified something that, that's potentially missing. Can it be replicated elsewhere? I, I know, um, so someone I mean, way, way before Google did any of this, uh, working in, in the retail uh, sector in the UK, so this was in the 1990s, uh, who created these kind of psychologically safe environments where, where the teams were, you know, she, she, would, she was a consultant, but she'd go and spend a day with the shelf stackers and she'd go and shell a, spell a day with, with the, the floor cleaners and she, she'd, she'd make sure everybody in, in the team was involved. And everybody had a voice. So it's a, it's a massive organization, and they, they had op retail operations everywhere. But what she, what, what she, the one she was working with, they, they worked out what their client base was. So the client, ba the client base is a bunch of uh, young mothers with young kids coming in at, at X, X time, and then later on you've got families or whatever. They, they would reorganize the retail constantly to try and sell more and more to these kind of people as they were coming in to make it a better experience, to make it a, 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 a you know, a more fluid, a fluid thing for them. And two, two major advantages. One, it took off because everybody enjoyed coming there. So, so that they, they became, they sort of dominated in terms of customer experience and two, none of their competitors could copy them because every shop was different. So they couldn't go, well, this is what they're doing. And now we can copy them because it was, Every shop was, was, was operating completely differently. Over time, all of these emergent processes and strategies became a, a, a playbook and the competitive advantage was lost. Now, this was after she'd left and, and she was brought back in later and she couldn't recreate it because, the, because she couldn't get the psychological safety back because the employees were brain-dead zombies, really. They, they'd, they'd been told what to do for so long and been shouted at for not doing it correctly for so long. That when she was trying to re-engage them in the thinking process, they weren't willing to take the risk to do it. 
So that so so, but it was a retail company that that massively succeeded in doing this. But to go back to Amy Edmondson's work, so I think that's the starting point. How do you solve it? So she talks about, and I, I I'm actually calling it um, it's being a wimp. Uh, so W I M P, wimpy as in not strong. Um, and she talks about uh, impression management. So she says, yeah, the big problem in organizations is everyone's managing the impression that they give off to everybody else. So I'm, I just added weak to the front of that. There's a form of weak impression management that's dominated in lots of that's dominant in lots of organizations. Uh, and she's very clear in what that means. She says you don't want to be ignorant, so you don't ask questions. You don't want to appear appear incompetent, so you don't make mistakes. You don't want to appear intrusive, so you don't offer ideas, and you don't want to appear to be negative, so you don't question the status quo. So that's what you've got to eliminate, that kind of impression management. And as soon as you want to eliminate that kind of impression management, that's when you start creating a, a psychologically safe environment. So the question is, how do you do that? So if the stage one is you, you have to reimagine humans. They're not resources anymore, but they're sense makers. So they're, they're your senses to what's going on in the organization. They can, they can, t they, they can bring you stories that are illustrating that actually the numbers and what's really going on, there's a big gap and potentially the numbers are going to go backwards because there's all kinds of problems going on, which they won't do if they're being wimps because they're unwilling to question and unwilling to offer ideas and unwilling to speak. So, so effectively, what you're, you seem to be saying is that, you know, uh, building effective teams, absolutely something that can be a capability of a company, uh, yeah. you know, sort of having effective teams. But the idea mm. that those teams then aggregate up into this big monoculture is just nonsense is yeah and i would prefer yeah so i, I much prefer to think of it as a as a civilization yeah. rather than a culture so civilizations have these negotiated meanings and you know so you civilize sort of like the roman empire had all of these different um inputs and different cultures within it yet within rome you had a whole bunch i mean think of the film gladiator i mean the the, the russell crowe character was a spaniard leading the Roman legion, you know, a, a completely different mindset, a completely different culture coming in and, and, and doing good work because he was, he, he, he was just the right kind of person for that kind of role. Um, he doesn't have to, and he want, all he yeah. wanted to do was go back and live that Spanish lifestyle again once he'd finished. And that's what you're looking at. How do you get, so if you've got a whole bunch of different teams with a whole bit different characteristics, rather than saying, well, we've got a, swipe put them all into this central culture how do we get them to communicate well together how do we get these subcultural subcultures to to understand each other so that when communication goes up and down the lines and the the the, the new interpretation of what's going on in one subculture by the other and there's huge value by having these new interpretations so you get that communication working well and you go oh wow i didn't think of it that way and suddenly you're moving forward again but if it's everyone has to think the same way, everyone has to have the same personality, everyone has to have the same education, everyone has to have similar backgrounds, you're never going to get that. You're, you're just going to get the, yeah. the sort of this focus of loyalty and et cetera, but you're not going to get the critical thought. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique. And your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. 
Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All of the episodes are up on the website. I've only got a few more episodes before... I'm going to be taking a summer break and I've got some really nice episodes coming up. I've got Emma Gannon, who's going to be talking about uh, sort of freelance work and turning yourself into your own business, I think is largely what we talk about. I've got three brilliant examples of things that people have tried at their work. Uh, I've got a couple of other things. So so a few more episodes to, to get us into early June, then I'll be taking a break for the summer. I do welcome all tweets, LinkedIn's, so you can find us at Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat if you search for that. And uh, by all means, do feel free to link into me. I always like, uh, I always like connecting with people there. All of the episodes are on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. I'm Bruce Daisley. See you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.